We're going to begin tonight in a study in the book of Revelation, and I don't know how many weeks it's going to take because I'm writing it as I go. The study is actually primarily based on a book by Watchman Nee. When he was in prison, and he was for many, many years of his ministry in China, he would sit with this book of Revelations and write those things that came to him. The reason I like it is because it's not a technical study of the book of Revelation, even though there's a lot of that in there. It's not trying to make sure that, that we get all of the symbolism right, it's, which is what most people who approach Revelation really wants to do, wants to get, technically get everything as it's supposed to be. But one of the things that Watchman Nee did that I liked was that he made each piece of that relevant right now. So much of my heart in ministry, especially I would say over the last three or four years, is this absolute awareness that God has to be moved out of the concept level into the practical reality of our lives every single day. It's not enough to know that God is love. It's not enough to believe conceptually that that is true, which is very easy to do. It's very easy for us to kind of find within our mind the capacity to believe that phrase, God is love. But what does that look like in my life every day? What does that truth look like in my relationships with friends, with family, with my wife? What does it look like? What does grace look like every day? So to me, and and this is purely Randy and purely his opinion, I think one of the great failings of church as I shared on Sunday morning from a study that David sent to me, I think, that, I'm going by memory and that's dangerous, but I think the percentage of people who are practicing and are engaging in organized religion, finding God in that, was at 16% in America. I think it was down 4 or 5% just over, over a few years. Why? Because religion denominations have taught us what God looks like at a concept level. But that concept is not turning into daily experience. It's allowing me to have a better relationship with my wife, to have a better relationship with my children, to have a, to have a better relationship with God, because it's stuff we know, not stuff we live. And we've done it to ourselves. Revelation, the book of Revelation. Again, recognizing from Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they gave multiple answers which is what will always happen when we try to decide things about God mentally and emotionally. And Peter gives that profound answer. You're Christ. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. What caught Jesus' attention immediately in that moment. He didn't say, you know, wow, you got the right answer. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but by my father, which is in heaven. And Jesus then said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we missed what Jesus was talking about. We missed that what caught his attention when he said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. The reason you're blessed is because you receive this by revelation. And telling us that revelation was designed to be the basis of the church. I know that's conceptually so different than what we've ever heard. I was on the phone with the pastor today. Just... He called me randomly, needed to ask me a question about, about something. And anyway, just for a, a brief moment, took a detour down this path. 
And I told him, I said, you know, it's interesting that God has no desire to make our lives better or to change our lives. And he said, wait a minute, what did you say? And I said, God has no interest or desire in making our lives better. And he said, would you explain that? And I said, I should be glad to. He came, Pentecost, changed the dynamic of the relationship and said, what I want to do is for your life to end so that my life can live through you. It's not about changing our life. It's about a great exchange, his life for my life. So that at the end of the day, my life has been an expression of him and not of me. And he said, wow, man, I've never heard that before. Like you're the pastor of this church. You've been the pastor of this church for 17 years. Somehow you've missed in teaching that this is about an exchange, not about an improvement. He was just blown away by, by a small revelation. But when we let it, again, that revelation is, becomes the beginning of our next experience with God. That revelation was designed to be delivered to us so that it could become real in the exchange between us. He showed me what he showed me so that my life could be affected by that revelation. So what do you think the purpose of revelation, the book of revelation really was? So that we could read, process it, understand it, conceptually get it? Not at all. It was given so that you and I could be affected by it right now. And that's what I liked by Watchman Nee. He tells us how it affects us right now. Not just so we get this picture of the apocalypse. So that we get this picture of this great change that's coming in our future. It's valuable to know that stuff. It's valuable to to study it that way. But what Watchman Nee did that I really loved was he makes it practical in our story today. So that's in the study. It will be a little bit more about that and a little bit less about technically going through the details of Revelation, even though I'm going through it at a pretty detailed level. So I'm going to begin that study. I have no idea how many weeks it's going to go. I have prepared through verse 10 of chapter one, and there are six pages of notes. And I have no chance in the world of getting through those six pages of notes tonight. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you tonight that we can come together and just live in the joy of the relationship, the joy that we can enjoy with each other, only made possible because of the abundance of joy that you have shown us on the cross at the resurrection, at Pentecost, the joy, the currency of heaven that was given us in each one of those moments so that we can spend it freely and exchange with one another and that we can laugh together and love together, enjoy this opportunity to be together as a family. So we thank you that each one's here. We thank you, Lord, for the time that they have invested. And we pray, Lord, that as we study together, that you would bring revelation, individual revelation, an unveiling of truth as we go through this. Things maybe that that someone hasn't seen before, even though they might have studied revelation many times. So we thank you, Lord, that we can come and open your word, look at this, and just study together, asking God by your power, by the Holy Spirit, that you would bring truth and relevance from this message. In Jesus' name, amen. This is recorded by the Apostle John. We know that well. He was the last surviving disciple at this time. He wrote the last gospel. He wrote the last epistle while exiled to Patmos. 
It was just a rocky island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He wrote during a time of great persecution, but there he saw this vision. And one of the things that we will get into in just a few minutes, external persecution, external circumstances and pressures have absolutely no ability to close the gate between us and God. We think it does. We feel isolated from God in those moments. And that's one of those things that we learn immediately in the relevance of this story is that in the middle of tribulation, and it was severe tribulation, punishment and and, and exile that John was experiencing, separation, but it did not affect the openness between him and God. What difference would it make if you and I could believe that right now within individual stories? I mean, it doesn't take much discouragement. It doesn't take many pieces of bad news for us to say, God, why are we lost? Why, Why have you forgotten me? I can remember, I think it was in 1983 and coldest winter I'd ever been through in the oil field. High temperature for 14 days was four degrees and it's over Christmas and we weren't coming home and it was awful. You know, I don't know what day we were on, but it's like, God, what in the world are you doing? It's like in the moment of the misery, I promise you, it was right up before Christmas. I, it came out of my mouth. God, have you forgotten where I am? And I don't think I'm the only one who's ever said it. I also promised God in that 14-day stretch, if you'll let it warm up, I'll never complain about the heat again. I don't care how hot it gets. I will not say a single thing because I made a promise. I was so cold. God, you let it warm up. You know, I'm not complaining about the heat again, so I don't. So much to our maybe disbelief, this book was a book absolutely and fully designed to be understood and applicable right now. Again, that's different. We roll it into a category of future events. But again, what's the purpose of ever revelation? It's the beginning of our next experience with God. So to say, okay, I'm going to give you a revelation, but it has no relevance until somewhere way out here. Now, prophecy, maybe. Vision, maybe. Not revelation, because a revelation is a simple uncovering or unveiling of something that has always been so that you can actually, by the reality of what's uncovered, be changed by it right now. This isn't designed to be something that is protracted. It was designed to have an immediate benefit in the lives of the people receiving it right now, including us. So we need to discover in the book of Revelation these practical truths that should do something right now in our story. So it was perfectly designed to uncover or reveal something that God wants us to know. His promise in chapter one, verse three, establishes a special blessing for those who read the book. This is what verse three says. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. He said, there's a special and particular blessing for those who read this, understand it, accept it, and let it mean something right now. Much of the book is written in sign language. I learned something when Kate was taking sign language and probably something that everybody else knew, but American sign language is not based on English. It's like, I thought it was. I thought when you did this sign, that they were processing, oh, cat, C-A-T. 
No. Not connected to English whatsoever. Unless you're spelling out a particular word, the history of it's not even American. I think it's French. But the reality is that sign language, they're not talking in English at all. It is a language of its own. And they're insulted when you try to make sign language connected to English or anything else. If somebody were to try to diminish the speaking of English, that's the way it affects them. Well, the interesting thing about this sign language of the book of Revelation was that it was not the sign language of earth. Where was this revelation occurring? In heaven. It's the sign language of heaven. And that's why it's difficult. But the truth is that every piece of sign language is revealed somewhere else in the scripture. If he was going to use the sign language of earth, the descriptions would have been very different. It would have looked more like Matthew chapter 13 when there was a a sower sowing seed. He's using exactly what they would know from an earthly illustration so that they could become clear about the parable that he's telling them. Well, Revelation doesn't read anything like that. The symbolism is so strange, it is so unusual, and you realize that it's the symbolism of heaven. But we were designed to be able to understand it. The Gospels showed him as he was on earth. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us what Jesus was like on the earth. His walking, his ministry, his teaching, his sacrifice. Those Gospels were designed to give us a picture of him on the earth. Revelation is designed to tell us of Jesus in heaven. Has an entirely different purpose to give us something about Jesus that is beyond what we could understand on the earth. So that's where the language of the earth would be used. If we're going to describe Jesus in terms of of a heavenly realm, it has to be done in the sign language of heaven. That cleared up some things for me as to why I have trouble with this. When I started at South Plains College and I had a teacher, I think her name was Frances Watkins in English. She introduced me to this hidden language within literature that was symbolic. The author was telling a story beyond the words by the symbolism that they chose to use. You know, here's the the red badge of courage in that very familiar book. When it begins to describe this guy's death, I think his name is like Jim or James Connor or something like that. It begins to give this picture of him laid out like this. What's his initials? JC. And you realize that the author of this book is telling you a story beyond the story that you're reading. And I became fascinated with it. I, you know, I would go to the library for every story that we read and I would look up the sign language that was within the story because I loved it. I didn't realize the gift that she was giving me because that's what created the fascination with the symbolism in the Bible. That that rock in the Old Testament that Jesus struck is Christ. That that tree that was thrown into the bitter waters of Merah is the cross. What changes bitterness to joy is the cross. So that symbolism that is in the Old Testament that helps us understand the New Testament, I gained that fascination in college. So we're reading about a symbolism now that's totally unfamiliar to me, but I realized in the truth of it, it was because it is the sign language, the symbolism of heaven. Judgment is a profound theme within the book of Revelation. It's kind of found within all the scripture. The book of Revelation is the time where things are set right. 
what seemed wrong and unjust within the story found within the Gospels of, of a Christ who came to love us, a Christ who came to offer himself for us. But that story ends, it seems like it's unjust that he would be treated that way and come to that end when he had never done anything wrong. Well, the book of Revelation tells us how that is made right because he ascends to the throne of God. It sets things right that seemed unreconciled within the rest of the story. What happens to Israel? What happens to us as the church? All of those things reconcile or set right within the story of Revelation. The theme of judgment, the first we come across in the book of Revelation is the judgment of the church's witness in the world. As he goes through in these first chapters, goes to each of the churches. The first thing that's judged is the witness of the churches, the church's effect and influence within the world. How do you think we're going to fare? I think you could take a compilation of all the churches and all the critical things that he said to each one of those, even the ones that he just criticized with minor things. I think you're going to find all of those within the current Christian church. I think that the judgment of the church's witness within the world, the score is not going to be very good. The outcome's not going to be good. Someone sent me a deal, and I get these in email every now and then. I don't pay much attention to it. But this one was interesting because the title of the email was Don't Widen the Plate. It was, it's a story of a baseball coach who had gone to a conference and was really amazed at the elderly speakers who had chosen to come. And he got up to speak, and of course he was well-revered. And uh, he went through his speech. It was good. And they respond to a couple of things, and, and his answer was don't widen the plate. Home plate is 17 inches across. And he said, when you get a particular batter up there, he said, you, you watch an umpire widen or change the width of the plate, adjusting it because of the person that's standing there. He said, coaches, when these prima donna players come in and the rules don't apply to them anymore, apply to everybody else, but they don't apply to these, these people, you just widen the plate. And he goes through, families are doing it, schools are doing it, And then he gets to churches are doing it. We're widening the plate. We're making things acceptable today that are not acceptable in this word. We're widening the plate. And he said, don't do it. Don't let yourself widen the plate. It was very well written, very well done. It might've been one of those things that James White sent. I don't don't know. He sends things like that from time to time. He second judges the sin of the world. He judges it to a finality, which because it can't enter in to what's going to happen next. And then the final part of Revelation is the judgment of Satan himself and him being cast into the lake of fire. So there is this constant message of judgment, but notice something, again, relevant to you and I today. In the book of Revelation, is there any judgment of believers, of Christians? Nope. So what does that mean? What should that tell us relevant in this moment? It tells us several things. It tells us that the blood of Jesus was so comprehensive, so all-inclusive, so dynamic that no sin in our life today as believers will transfer into this period. We keep beating ourselves up with sin that God can no longer see. Holding ourselves accountable for sin committed and beating ourselves up with it, but the Father can't see it. Hard, hard for us to accept. Hard to process that I am that forgiven. 
And so does that give me, according to Paul's question, does that give me permission then to continue in sin? God forbid. Why? Because I know the price that it cost him to provide the blood to cover my sin so that I don't have to live under the bondage of that sin committed yesterday, this morning, tomorrow. I don't have to live under the bondage of it, but I would never take advantage of it because I know the price that it cost him to provide that blood, to provide that covering. We have a hard time accepting that we are that forgiven. And we keep beating ourselves up with things that we've done instead of recognizing by the blood that now covers our sin and the means by which we can confess our sin and be cleansed and made righteous again, according to John 1. All that God has established so that we don't have to enter into this period wondering what's going to happen to my sin. When you have to wonder. Sin of the world, what the sin remaining uncovered has to be judged within the book of Revelation. That's not my sin. That's hard to comprehend. Hard to process that I have that kind of freedom. But what would happen to us if we could handle that? Again, we wouldn't have to be worried about being tempted to sin more. We wouldn't read that and say, well, that's, that's kind of like a get out of jail card. I just can do what I want. If you have that thought, I can assure you Christ does not live in you. Because that Christ that now lives in you is bearing witness to the high price paid for the ability for us to live free cost him his son. Pretty expensive grace. I want us to read, if you would, uh, beginning with verse one, I'm going to read about 10 verses and then we'll proceed on. I'm racing right through this stuff. I'm still on page one of my notes. I say that for y'all's encouragement. Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before this throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What's the tense of those phrases? Past tense. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins and in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, which in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day 
and heard behind me a great voice as if it were a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So each of these places received a copy of this book. Not just the portion that was relevant to them, they got the copy according to this of the entire thing. So when we start looking at this study, part one of this study draws our attention to three things. The purpose of this revelation, the means by which the revelation is given, and the significance of this revelation. So when it opens up, when we start looking at the first part that I just read, it will give us those things. It will give us purpose. It will give us the means by which it was given and the significance. So let's look first just briefly at the purpose. What was God trying to accomplish? There is certainly a difference between revelation and inspiration when we start looking at purpose. Revelation, as we've talked about, is the unveiling or uncovering of God to men that they might see him. Okay, think about that for just a second. Revelation, the word when you look it up, is unveiling. So it's like if, if my phone was laying here and it had a cloth over it, the phone was there, it had always been there, but we hadn't seen it before, that unveiling suddenly lets us see something that has always existed, but that we could not see. So revelation is the uncovering of God so that we can see something about him that we've never seen before. And I want to tell you, when we grasp that and recognize that it is by revelation that we understand him and not reasoning, when we understand God not by the reasoning of men, but by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, we will begin to discover God in ways that we've never imagined him. When could we ever come to the end of that study? When could we ever say, okay, I've got it. But when you get on college campuses and you start talking about Calvinism and Arminianism and those kind of things that get tossed about on colleges, they're going to say in five bullets, I can capture God. It's what Calvinism does, what Arminianism does. It's like, I've got God figured out and I can define it in five bullets. And immediately it's like, how in the world can you create a definition around God that can be captured in five bullets? it would immediately, to me, be totally unreasonable because I, I know by my personal experience, preaching four or five times a week, I'm amazed at the unveiling of God. How regularly I see something about him that I've never seen before. So what's the great purpose of the book of Revelation? It's not inspiration. Inspiration is the leading of God so that we can find direction. Revelation is so that we can know God. Not just be moved and encouraged by him, but so that we can actually watch him be uncovered so that we can actually know the person of God. To hear his heartbeat, to watch his hands work, to actually see by revelation the uniqueness of who he is. So the meaning or purpose of all of this is, that's being uncovered is based on a revelation given to Jesus Christ. So again, we've heard this many times. Technically, this is not a revelation of, this is not John's revelation. John is simply a scribe. This is a revelation given from God the Father to his son, Jesus Christ. It's not John's revelation. It's unfortunate in the King James Version that it says the revelation of John while on the Isle of Patmos. Sorry, that, uh, that heading was not in the scripture 
This is a revelation of Jesus Christ given to him by his father. It's a revelation that tells those things which, that are soon to come and tells us of Jesus himself and how he will overcome, establish glory, and become king. It is one revelation. When you hear somebody say the book of Revelations, no, it's one revelation. Start to finish, given to Jesus, sent by an angel, recorded by John. He gives us that order. What was the means of it, that second piece of it? It says, which God gave unto him. So where did the revelation begin? In the heart of God, in the mind of God the Father. It tells us clearly that the revelation comes by Father's truth. And he sent and signified it by his angel. As with many great messages, it came by the means of an angel delivery. That's how it got there. The book of Daniel over and over. Daniel was receiving the messages in Daniel by the angelic delivery. It says, unto his servant John. So there's the progression from God the Father to Jesus to an angel to John so that it could be captured and written down. So that it could be believed and read by many. So that it it was a truth. It's kind of like so many things that happen in the book of Daniel. And we read about these great battles between a a demonic and angelic realm where the messages of God were being sent to the earth and there was great battles in the cosmos recorded like in Daniel chapter 10 when the demonic world didn't want the message to get through until Michael or Gabriel or someone would come and then the message could get through and, and be delivered and recorded so that you and I could have it today. So what was the significance of the message? He says, to tell you of the things which must shortly come to pass. The word must in that scripture speaks of things that are not subject to change. They're not subject to drift. And no matter what we think, no matter what we feel, no matter what we want to do to the scripture, it tells us that these are things that must come to pass. We can try to say, well, God would never do that. God would never treat us that way. God would never show that kind of wrath. God would never treat people like that. God would never punish people like that. That would never be the outcome. And we can wash it away and make God totally ineffective within this story. And he says, I don't care what your conclusions are. These things are going to come to pass. You can't adjust them in your theology. When it says shortly come, Those words in Greek signify to us that these things that are recorded are not to be delayed. When these things are released, when that moment passes, it says that they will come in rapid. The word shortly comes from this word, a Greek word that says in tachos, T-A-C-H-O-S, car guys. What other word comes from that word tachos, tachometer? What does the tachometer, did you get that right, Danny? Judy got it. Tim got it. I heard a few. Great job. What does the tachometer measure? Yeah, speed, velocity. That's the same word. When this starts, the velocity is going to be rapid. Can't change it. Can't alter it. It's going to come in rapid procession. Everything in this introduction speaks of urgency. Why then? If this was a message given with relevance then and now, and the message was given to create urgency, what should it tell us about our complacency? It shouldn't be. 
if we know these things to be true, if we know them, it doesn't create a frenzy of activity, but it creates an urgency, first of all, that my life remains ready, that I don't live an unguarded life in terms of my relationship with God. I remain ready. I live on the watch. I live prepared for the moment that's coming, not to be caught unaware. The urgency that, that this tells us, this says when we pay little attention to this or we pay little attention uh, to the reality of what he's trying to tell us about this life now, we ignore the life that this message is designed to produce. For example, if, if we went home, we all turned on the news and across the airways of America, we got word that within an hour, we would be attacked by another nation. Those details, that amount of information would cause a stir in us that would create urgency. We wouldn't even have to think about it. Most important things would stay most important. Most unimportant things would drop off the list so fast. But what is the nature of how Satan works in us? What, what is one of his great tactics? that we would focus routinely on the unimportant, bickering and fussing over unimportant things, majoring on the unimportant and minoring on the important. And he's saying, I'm, I'm giving you this book to change that order back, that you would live urgent lives, that your complacency toward these things would have no basis because you believe these things to be true. So he wouldn't write them so that we couldn't understand them that won't create the urgency. The revelation was given that the record of that which God spoke and the testimony of the same established in the life of the son could be before us right now. It says unto him that loved us, both for what he has done, freeing us from sin by his blood and knowing what the future reality is. And he has made us both priests and kings. Again, What's the relevance? How many of us process life in terms of kings and priests? That that's you. Like, oh, not me. Maybe somebody else. Maybe somebody more religious. You know, on Sunday morning, and many of you were here, but on Sunday morning, God gave me a title to a message. And the message was the year of a thousand miracles. And that was not a thousand miracles for this church. That was a thousand miracles per person in this one year. It's like, whoa, can't be right. That can't be right. I hadn't seen any. And suddenly you're going to say within this year, there's going to be a thousand. And I went to two scriptures. I went to Matthew nine to the woman with the issue of blood. And I went to Matthew eight with the man with leprosy. With those two diagnoses, life had to become miserable for those two people. With the diagnosis of leprosy, he had to leave his family immediately separated to go live with those who also had that same diagnosis to wait until their death because there was nothing they could do. And we know the awful stories. We know that they would lose the feeling in their, in their limbs, in their fingers first, and rats would eat them off and they couldn't feel it. So how would you characterize his life as a leper? Misery, discouragement, frustration, despondency. You can list a dozen things describing that life. What about this woman who'd spent everything she had, 12 years, trying to find an answer only to be frustrated by the, probably the awful procedure that they did, the pain of that with no success, what would her life be like? Misery. But in both stories, it says 
she came seeking Jesus by faith, believing if I can touch his garment, I'll be healed. The leper came, Matthew 8, 1, 2, and 3, worshiping Jesus. Those don't line up. Discouragement, misery, despondency, and despair don't line up with a woman who's now moving in faith. They don't line up with a man now moving in worship. So what does it tell us? Before these two miracles that we read, these big miracles that we read, there had to be dozens of small miracles occur. There had to be moments when somebody was reaching out to these broken people. There had to be somebody who was speaking encouragement. There had to be somebody who was loving them, caring for them, telling them about Jesus, testifying to them, witnessing to them. Something had to be happening. And again, I don't belittle these miracles, but anytime there's a release of God by the Holy Spirit through me to somebody else, it's a miracle. If I hug them, encourage them, teach them, love them, anything that I do that is a release of God in him by the Holy Spirit through me and touch somebody's life, it's miraculous to the person who got touched. You will believe that about yourself possible if you see yourself as a priest and king. If you see yourself as a pauper within the kingdom of God, helpless and hopeless within the kingdom of God, I don't have anything to give. I don't have anything to share. I don't have anything to do. Then the thought of a thousand miracles will be overwhelming. If you live in the place of a priest and king, where I can, by the authority that I have, by those two positions that I hold, I can release the provision of God and touch the people around me. A thousand miracles will be nothing. That's 2.7 a day, 2.7 times a day that you have an impact on somebody else's life. And we ought to look at that and say, that's not near enough to see someone. And again, I shared on Sunday morning, you don't even have to change your job. You don't have to change where you drive. You don't have to change where you go. You don't have to change your plan. You just have to be aware of those people around you. When you see the heart broken, when you see the despair, when you see the discouragement, speak to them from the love of God, the peace of God, the joy of God, and let the miracle be released into them. And it might just set their life in a direction that would allow this big miracle to happen. 2.7 a day for a year. And it will seem overwhelming. If you see yourself as a pauper, it will be nothing if you see yourself as a king. See the relevance to today? When John says, has made us kings and priests unto God and his father. So what we now experience, we will be fully realized in the future. Because he says, we are in a kingdom, not a future kingdom. He's saying in this message, we are already have been made those things. If you are a king, then what would you call your domain? A kingdom. We are kingdom citizens right now, not later, not some other point, not some day in the future. When all this unfolds that we read in Revelation right now, he says, I want you to know, as he did with Jesus after the order of Melchizedek, who was both priest and king, that that is who we are. As Jesus was both priest, able to come before God personally, presently, having the authority, though, as a king in the terms of royalty and having the access to all the provision of the kingdom so that I can not only come before God, but I can release God's provision as both priest and king. Today, relevant today, through us who seem to feel disqualified, through us who seem too weak to be able to touch anybody's life and make any change. And God is saying, I have established you to be priest and king 
so that by you and through you, I can release the fullness of me and watch the lives around me be changed. Today, that's God becoming relevant. Not a concept, not something we hold in our head, something released by our hands, expressed by our hearts and spoken by our mouth. The result is, is what John proclaimed, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And I'm going to stop right there. I have covered one and one third pages. So we'll be here about this time next year wrapping up. Again, I don't want to betray what, God, what the revelation is. If the revelation was designed to affect us now, let's figure out how. Let's talk about now. What does it tell us about us now? Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could be together. Thank you for the truth that you speak. I pray, Lord, that our spirits could receive it as truth. We thank you, Lord, for each one who's come and for the blessing of just being here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.